Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. I'm simultaneously a person with a great memory and I am incredibly forgetful. If you've known me for more than a couple of minutes, you'll understand that I have like the short-term memory of a guppy. And and I I just don't remember things. I can remember who won the 1989 NCAA football championship. That would be the Colorado Buffaloes. Um, uh, But I can't remember something you told me five minutes ago. I'm just a very forgetful person. I remember Bible verses. I remember trivia. I'm great for trivia. But when it comes to things like, did you know, did I lock the car, which I will go back and hit the button 12 times. Did I pay that bill? I don't remember. Um, if I say I'm 99% sure that I did something, I'm 99% sure I didn't do it uh, because I just tend to forget. And those doubts will creep in. And one of those ways we see that at our, at our house is I will get up almost every single night and go check the doors. I will go check the doors because I believe that I've unlocked the doors and that someone's going to barge into our house in the middle of the night and I'm going to have to like defend our home. That's this fear that's in the back of my head. And so I get up every single night and I go check the doors. And when I'm really anxious, I do this multiple times a night. I'll get up and I'll go and I'll check. And then sometimes I'll leave the door and I'm like, wait, was it really locked? And I'll go check. If you're like in, you know, in the mental health, you're just examining me right now. You're like, something's wrong with this guy. Um, And sometimes Amy will just put her hand on me and say, you locked the door. It's okay. Doubts creep in when we forget, and doubts creep in when everything seems like it's not steady under our feet, when things just don't seem like they're supposed to be. And so doubt is is something that makes us feel unsteady, and it really feels as if the, the ground underneath our feet isn't level. Something just kind of always feels off, like one shoe has a little bit more heel on it than the other. And when doubt creeps in, doubt can creep in in a couple of different ways and at a couple of different times. One way that doubt creeps in is when we get still, when we stop, when we slow down, and we get to kind of take account of what's going on in our hearts, we can let doubt begin to creep in. And Abram is the perfect example of this. We see this in Abram's life here at the end of chapter 14, at the beginning of chapter 15, as we're continuing our series in Genesis, that Abram has just had a really high action-packed couple of days. He has seen his, his nephew Lot get taken away in the middle of this geopolitical conflict. He gets kidnapped, him and all of his stuff. Um, he's riding on a high because uh, Abram and 318 trained men were able to go and defeat four armies of the east. He's riding on this high and he finally gets to stop and the adrenaline finally subsides and doubt begins to creep in. And I believe that this is why God says in chapter 15, verse one, he speaks to Abram and he says, fear not, Abram, why would he have to tell Abram to not be afraid? Because Abram was afraid. Abram was scared. And I don't believe he was just scared of the presence of God, which I mean, I believe he was in a a healthy way. But he's also afraid because he's beginning to take account of all the things that just happened, that he was able to just thump four armies with this tiny little group of people He's met this king, Melchizedek, who's brought him bread and wine and blessing and gifts. And he's wondering, was that all that real? Was all of that, did all of that really happen? What if there's some repercussions for the fact that I just did all of these things? And he begins to wrestle with this. But also for us, and I think this tends to be another way that we struggle with this, is doubt can creep in when we can't get still. So doubt creeps in when we get still, but it also creeps in when we feel overwhelmed. 
when we feel restless. And living in a city like Boston, Boston can make us feel really, really restless. I was having this conversation over breakfast just yesterday about how in our city, it feels like it's hard to do just the basic things we need to do each day, simply because this is just sometimes a tough place to live. Um, when we first moved here, I felt like we were underwater. Like for the first three months, I was like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I've lived in a city before. What is this? Our city's just fast paced. It makes us feel restless. And when anyone moves to Boston, anyone's new, I'm like, how do you like it so far? They're like, I'm a little overwhelmed. I'm like, give it about three months. You'll be okay. You'll get used to the pace. But work can be hard. It can be competitive. We feel really lonely. And this leads to this unsettled, unsteady feeling that causes us to doubt and wonder, when is this going to change? When is work going to slow down? Why am I here? How am I going to get through this next week? And what happens is doubt creeps in and Abram understands what you're feeling about doubt. Abram is feeling this way because God had promised to give him a son and many years have passed. And he's saying, Lord, I've waited. When is this going to happen? And you see doubt creep in. So two questions that we're going to answer this morning. One we're going to answer very quickly. And then the other question we're going to answer throughout the sermon. The first question is, is it okay to have doubts? And the answer to that question is yes. Secondly, how does God address our doubts? So it's okay to have doubts, but how does God address them? And something we need to understand is that God is not afraid of your doubts. God is not scared when you bring doubts to him. They don't offend him. They don't scare God. And actually, when we bring our doubts to God, it may be a sign that we are looking to deepen our faith. We want our faith to go deeper, that we're not satisfied with just simple answers, that what we say are not just words that we repeat, but we really want these to be deeply held convictions that get deep down in our souls and be things that we believe and live out of. That we don't want to just say that Jesus is my peace, but I want to believe deeply that Jesus can give me peace. And what we find when we bring our doubts to God is that he is so gentle with us. And I believe this is why the book of Jude says that we are to give mercy to those who doubt, to snatch them back from the fire. So we see mercy for those who doubt, but also we see God drawing us closer to himself, not leaving us in our doubts. And this is an opportunity for us as the church to practice this. Eric Mason encouraging the church as people of God, we have, not, uh, we have to not see all doubt as a threat, but an opportunity for engagement. So how does God reassure us in our doubts? How does he do this? How does he steady the ground underneath us? So let's look at this firstly, that God reassures you when you doubt. The first thing we see is that God already knew what was going on in Abram's heart. Nothing that, that Abram brought God was a surprise. Nothing he brought him was going to make God blush. Nothing was going to make God gasp in horror that Abram will be struggling with this promise that he's given him and he's struggling to believe in. He knows the doubts that Abram is struggling with. And what does God choose to do? You notice it's not that Abram comes to God with his doubts. It's that God comes to Abram in his doubts. God presses in and he pursues. And again, this is a theme we see throughout the Bible is that God is constantly pursuing his people with mercy and grace and comfort. And we see at the beginning of chapter 15, verse one, and we don't wanna get past this. This is super important. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord came to Abram. This is the only time in the first five books of the Bible that those words are uttered. 
that God, his word came to Abram, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it said one time. And this is just one example of how God reveals himself. And we see throughout the Old Testament that God revealed himself in multiple different ways. There's a very fancy, you know, 50 cent word, uh, theological word called a theophany that God reveals himself. And we see that he did this last week through Melchizedek. This is a picture of Christ. We see God revealing himself in a burning bush in Exodus. We see God revealing himself as the fourth man in the fire in Daniel. We see God revealing himself multiple times over and over and over again. But here he reveals himself as the word. God wants to be found. When, we, when it comes to God and our doubts, God, God's not playing a giant game of hide and seek. Uh, when my kids were little, we would play hide and seek and I would get really tired of, of trying to hide. I'd be hiding for 20 minutes and my feet are hanging out from under the curtains and they still can't find me. And I was kind of, I'm over here. Uh, like try to draw them toward me. Christianity is the only religion where God is not hidden. God revealed himself through his son. Every other religion or worldview is saying, prove yourself, prove yourself worthy after you doubt. Stop doubting, believe, come to me, and then you can receive me. But yet here comes God in the midst of Abram's doubts, and he says, fear not. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God knew his fear, and he reassures him. He says, I'm your shield. I'm the one who's gonna protect you. I'm the one who's gonna keep you. I'm, I'm the one who's gonna protect you from all the consequences of everything that you just did. I'm your safe place. The promises are still intact. See, God reassures us that he is safe to come to with our doubts. But often our experiences tell us that when we bring our doubts to other people, we bring our struggles to other people, that it's not a safe place to go. And this is why Jackie Hill Perry says that, she says, I wonder if underneath our doubt, the reason why we don't trust God and therefore we struggle with holiness is because we have a suspicion that God isn't safe either that he is just like the father that left us, that he's like the mother that didn't nurture us, the friend that didn't listen to us, or the person in a position of power that abused us. It's easy because of our experiences to then transfer that idea onto God. I know for myself, when I was growing up, the idea of a father was not a safe image. So the image of God being a father was not a safe place for me. But as I was able to read the scriptures and see God's faithfulness and how he was different than an imperfect earthly father, I realized that I could bring my doubts to him. I could bring my struggles to him, that they weren't a sign of, of my weakness or my inability to perform my, or my inability to be good enough, but it was actually God's invitation to me. And we see Abram do this in verses two and three. Notice that Abram, after God reveals himself, feels comfortable enough to confess his struggles he says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. He confesses his doubt. He says, God, I'm, I'm having a hard time trusting you with this. He doesn't blame Sarah. Sarah, he doesn't say it's her fault. He doesn't go all King Henry VIII and say, well, you're the problem. I just need a new wife to get a son. He doesn't do that. He takes his complaint to God and he says, O Lord God. He's saying, you're still God. I still, I still trust you. I still see that you're able, but I'm just a little confused right now. I I'm struggling a little bit. And I think this is really comforting to us because 
Paul, what he said in the New Testament about Abram's faith is he said that Abram's faith never wavered. Isn't that incredible? That you can still have doubts and be confused, but yet still have unwavering faith. And we see this because he sees the alternative and he confesses it to God. He says, well, God, if you don't give me a son, I'm gonna have to have Eleazar, who was a servant of mine, brought into my house. I'm gonna have to give everything to him. It's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You know, Willy Wonka didn't have an heir. And so he, he sends out his chocolate bars with a golden ticket into the community and Charlie gets one and Uncle Grandpa Joe pops up after 40 years of disability fraud and they work their way to the chocolate factory. They go and, and, and he say, I'm gonna have to give him the inheritance. And he says, if I'm going to have an heir for the promise, it's not going to happen this way. And what really Abram is saying is the same thing that the centurion said to Jesus in the New Testament, I believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever been in a place where you're saying, Lord, I believe, I believe you died for my sins, but today I'm just having a hard time believing it. So how does God respond? Now, what we expect is for God to say, I cannot believe you, don't believe me. I can't believe you would doubt me after all of this. You remember that jam that you were in back in Egypt? I took you out of a dump in Ur and brought you into this new land. No, he gently reassures him. And Abram is asking, how can I be sure? And in verses four and five, we see it says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He's saying, how can it be? He said, I want to assure you, it's going to be your very own son. And I love the way the King James Version says this. The King James is beautiful and poetic and hard to read. But it says, thing, it says this, that your son will come out of your bowels, which means the very center of who you are. He'll be yours. And notice here also that God reassures him that he's going to have a son, but he doesn't just say that. He ups the ante a little bit. He says, I'm not just going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a people. Verse five, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. One of my favorite things we do as a church is we get away once a year in October and we go to New Hampshire and uh, we get out of the city and we get to walk outside. And on Friday night, we walk outside, we go to the campfire and every year I look up at the stars and I just kind of begin to count and I look for certain constellations. And you know what eventually begins to happen is you just stop counting. You look at the stars and you're like, and you just stop in amazement. What Abram is doing in that moment, what God's challenging him to do is, I want you to see that the impact I'm going to have in your life beyond your doubts is far greater than you're ever going to be able to count. It's going to outlive you. God reassured him that he was a safe place to come with his doubts. And so do you see God as a safe place to come with your doubt? He's so gentle and he wants to reassure you and if you're in Christ, you have Christ as your shield. Christ is the defender against your guilt and your shame and your fear. He is your reward. And you may be asking God, how will you do this? How will you get me through this? But God is so faithful to reassure us through his word where when we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And when we have peace, he gives it. And notice how in verse six, how Abram responds to this. He says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram was counted as having right standing before God simply because he believed that God was faithful. 
He was declared right, innocent. He was declared as one having honor. Now, how does this work? Was God just so impressed with Abram? He said he's doing his performance evaluation and he's like, you know, you've really improved this quarter. No. Abram looked ahead towards the future grace of God and said, I trust you're gonna do this. I trust you're gonna bring me through this. And what happens when we place our faith in Jesus, the type of faith that is counted as righteousness is our hearts are turned toward God's ability to rescue, toward God's ability to save, toward God's ability to come through. And so K.A. Matthews says that this is the substance of faith, waiting on God to come make good on his promises. And what you actually find when it comes to being counted right before God is it really has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. There's an old evangelism question that we would ask when we would go and share the gospel with people. And it was this, is why, if you were to die today, why should God let you into heaven? And there's only one answer. And there's lots of answers you can give, but there's only one answer that saves. The answers we're tempted to give are, well, God, I've, I've done all these good things. I believe these things. I've done this, I've given this, I've laid everything down. But the only answer is, I trust in what Jesus did for me. I'm counted righteous because of Jesus's righteousness. My sins are forgiven because Jesus went to a cross and died for me. My shame is taken away because Jesus took on my shame. The one answer is because of Christ crucified. And for, especially if you grew up in the church or you grew up religious, this is a hard question to answer because sometimes you can get lulled into thinking, well, I've always gone to church and I've done the right things, but the only righteousness that saves is a righteousness that isn't our own. It's Jesus has given to us. Now, something interesting happens in verse seven and eight. Verse seven, God says, I'm I'm the Lord. I brought you out of Ur. This is who I am. And then in verse eight, and I think one of the most human moments in the Bible Abram doubts again. God has done all of this. He's made all these promises and new doubts begin to pop up. I'm not sure how much time has gone by. It seems to be immediate. Uh, But as one thinker said, he says that it's as if the doubt shifts from God will you to God can I. From God's ability to his own ability. So the first doubt was doubting God. The second doubt was, was doubting God's ability to do it through him. See, doubts come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Sometimes our doubts are intellectual. You, you read the Bible and you're having a hard time wrestling with it and you know, kind of making this make sense with science. Um, you have a hard time thinking through some of the, the deeper parts of the faith and like, what does this mean for me? Sometimes it's emotional. We read something in the Bible or we hear something in a sermon and we have an emotional reaction to it. And we're like, well, I don't know that I could, could trust that. Sometimes it's relational. As I mentioned, we kind of import our human relationships onto God, or maybe you've had a hard time relationally with others and it's made it hard to trust. Sometimes we're just jaded. Like life has just not turned out the way we want and we begin to doubt God and his goodness. But I want you to see that God can even use those doubts to bring you closer to him. Waiting on God in our doubts can press deeper trust into our faith. And so what we need to do when we doubt is we need to figure out how to address it. And there are lots of ways we try to do this. We go looking for evidence. We go looking on, on YouTube, by the way, is the worst place to check your doubts out. Don't go to YouTube because there are, a, there are a million heresies that have been debunked for thousands of years that someone is repackaging and peddling again. Don't go to YouTube. Um, go to the Bible uh, or, or go to a trusted resource. I can provide resources for that stuff. 
Uh, sometimes we just ignore them. We ignore our doubts. We shove them deep down or we let them consume us. But there is a way that God invites us to respond to our doubts. They'll be up on the screen. The first is to give them to the Lord. We take our doubts and we just submit them to God. We come with a posture of saying, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Secondly is you need to doubt your doubts. Your doubts are not sovereign. They're not in control. They're they're not the thing that's gonna dictate your life. God is. You actually need to put doubt in your doubts. The third way is to identify the type of doubt you're struggling with. Sometimes you think you're struggling with an intellectual doubt. It's actually an emotional doubt. You've built an intellectual construct around an emotional problem. And then lastly is share your doubt with others. You don't have to do this alone. This is why the church exists. And for some, the church has not been a safe place to confess your struggles and doubts. We want City on a Hill to be a place where you can come doubting. You can come skeptical and that's okay. But believing that God's not going to leave you there as we look to Jesus together. Okay, so we see that God reassures us in our doubts, but the way that God reassures us is key. He reassures us through a covenant. God reassures through a covenant. God doesn't start by giving all the answers to Abram. He doesn't say on this day, at this time, this is when this is gonna happen for you. But he makes a promise to him based on who he is. A covenant is a contract or a promise based on the believability of the person making it, the trustworthiness of that person. And so what God says in this, he says in verse nine, he says, go get the animals. Now to us, that seems weird. Like you're in the middle of a, of a contract negotiation and you're like, go get a heifer. Like no one's ever said that in America. And so, but in the ancient world, this made a lot of sense. The way that you would make a covenant is you would take animals and they were, you'd make a sacrifice. And these were very valuable animals. Later in the old, in the old Testament system, you would take a one-year-old animal and make a sacrifice. Here, these are three-year-old animals, which would have been probably the most valuable animal. How old is the age of a, a, Kentucky, a, a Kentucky, Herbie, Her, Kentucky Derby horse? It's hard to say. A Kentucky, Kentucky Derby horse is three years. It seems odd to us, but this was really clear to Abram. This is how you made a legal agreement. And so in the ancient world, you make this contract and the way that you would do this is it went deeper than a contract because you're putting your life on the line. They would do what was called cutting a covenant. So that what they would do is that you see this here in chapter, uh, in, in chapter 10, or sorry, verse 10. And he brought him all these, cutting them in half and laid each half over against each other. So what they would do is they take one half of the animal and put it here, the other half of the animal here, and they would make a pathway and the idea was, is that you would walk between the two pieces of the animal. And what you're saying in that moment is you're saying, I promise to do this. I promise to do whatever we've agreed to. I promise to keep my word. And if I don't, this is what should happen to me. If I don't keep my word, tear me apart. And this is so serious that in verse 11, we see that Abram begins to shoo the birds away because he knows something here serious is happening. And in verse 12, it says that Abram falls into a deep sleep and it's described as a dreadful and great darkness that fell upon him. Abram understands the heaviness of what he's about to enter into. One thinker said that he was crushed by the weight of its expectation. And so he's doubting, God, can I do this? And it's almost as if God says, I'm gonna prove you can't do this. He's doubting himself and he's thinking, what if I fail? And God says, let's make a covenant where if you do fail, you die. That sounds like a fun game show. Like, let's do that. 
But on one hand, isn't that good news? Because do you want a God that you can control? Do you want a God that you can tell what to do? Do you you want a God who's not very powerful and not worthy of awe and worship? Because a God who's not powerful enough to demand everything from you is not powerful enough to save you. And here's how certain God is that he's going to come through. And this is pretty amazing. He's honest with Abraham that it's not gonna be easy. He's honest that this is gonna be a really difficult journey for Abraham and his people. He doesn't downplay the hardships. In verse 13, he says, then the Lord says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that, this is, that, that, that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. You and your people are going to face affliction. But then in verse 14, he says, I'm gonna vindicate you, but I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He's so certain that he tells them that all this, the hardships and the struggles and the troubles in between See, Christianity is honest with you. Christianity doesn't sell you a bill of goods and say that nothing bad is ever gonna happen to you again. But it says that God will be with you in the midst of those problems and struggles. That you will have trouble, but that God will give peace. That you may suffer for the sake of Christ, but yet you will receive honor greater than you could ever imagine. That whatever you're asked to give for the sake of Jesus, you will receive a hundredfold back. And we also see here that God guarantees this because God is in control of all things. He knows your future. He knows your days. He knows Abram's days in verse 15. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. He says, your your past can be fairly peaceful. But then for the Hebrews, he says in verse 16, and they, your people shall come back here in the fourth generation, that's 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That seems like a weird little throw-in statement, doesn't it? What do the Amorites have to do with this? What God's doing in this moment, you gotta look a little bit further into the Bible, is he's being patient with wicked people. The Amorites were known for their wickedness and what God is doing in that moment is he's saying, I'm gonna give them some time to either A, repent, or B, prove how wicked their hearts really are. And if you look deeper into the story, they were given to all sorts of evil and child sacrifice and oppression. And one day God would bring his people into the land. God will bring you through your doubts, not because of how good you can be, not because you can earn it. And he shows Abram this here. He says, you're right. You can't do this. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, what do you notice about who did not go between the two pieces of the animal? Abram. Abram never steps between them, but who does? God. The the torch and the pot are representative of the presence of God and this is really wild because you would never have seen this in an agreement in the, in the, olden, in the olden days, in the, in the ancient world. Oftentimes, a greater king would make an agreement with a lesser subject, and the lesser subject will be required to make the covenant, but not the king. Here, the king is saying, not only will I pay if I fail, and he won't, but I'll pay if you fail, and you will. God's saying, I'll be torn apart. I'll be cut off. 
I'll be removed from the land. And how does God do this? You look a little bit forward, and Isaiah tells us of this day. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity means the guilt of sin. Who took on the guilt of our sin? Who was punished for our disobedience? Who was cut off for our sake? And that was Jesus. Jesus became a man. He suffered so that God could show you grace. He was patient. Jesus walked the dreaded road of sin and death, and he took what you and I deserve so that you could be blessed in him. And he fulfills God's covenant to you to forgive your sins. And so when you doubt, when you have doubts about God's goodness or the direction of your life, you can look to Jesus, who Galatians 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, what we're talking about right here, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus is the evidence that God is for you and will always come through, that you can trust him and that you can bring every doubt that you have to him. Look to God and see what he's done for you in Jesus. And when it comes to your doubt, you have to trust him first because you can have all your technical questions answered about life in the Bible, but if you don't trust God for who he is, it'll never be enough. There'll just be another question that pops up. But what you find when you trust God is that First is that all your questions seem to be answered. Are you struggling with doubt this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, how might God be using your doubts to deepen your faith? If you've ever gone to the gym and you're trying to grow your muscles, what does it take to build muscle? It takes resistance. It takes pain. It takes struggle. It takes suffering, depending on how much weight you're lifting. God is using that to deepen your faith. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you're coming in this morning with all of your doubts, and all of your struggles, I want you to know that you can trust him. He's worthy to give your doubts to, and he's worthy to give your life to. Let's pray. 